verses into chapter 4. So if you have your Bible with you, you can open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll be starting to read in verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 is where we're going to be starting this morning. We'll be reading the end of that. It's just, about, it's just a short paragraph. And then a few verses into chapter 4. If you don't have your Bible with you or you can't find it, that's okay because we'll have the passage on the screens next to me. So you'll be able to follow along there. Nobody will be left behind. Okay, well, if we're all ready, then we'll go ahead and jump in this morning looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Since it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are futile. So let no one boast in human leaders, for everything is yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. Everything is yours, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. A person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. It is, God, it is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart. And then praise will come to each one from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. So you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive, if in fact you did receive it? Why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? So when we look at this passage this morning, especially at the end of <clears throat> chapter 3 there, Paul says something that sums up very well the intentions that I had whenever I was thinking about this series that we are doing now and the vision for this series and what it was really all about. In verse 19, he says that the wisdom uh, of this world is foolishness with God. Uh, in other words, not only is God's wisdom vastly superior and it is infinite compared to the limited wisdom of the world, but very often it is uh, counterintuitive. It is the opposite of what is the world's so-called wisdom. He sums it up so well, what I was wanting to do in this series. Remember, he, he says that phrase there. Because what I wanted to do in this series that we're doing called Surrender, I wanted to look at some of the, not all of, but some of the major problems that we face in our society and in life today. Mostly what we're looking at here are personal problems that we face as individuals, though we can see them on a societal level to a certain extent. But I wanted to look at some of the major personal problems that we face today and see how the Bible's solution is the opposite of the world's. How what the, the Bible's wisdom in approaching all these different problems that we face, whether they be problems that come from pride, as we have looked at, whether they pro be problems that come from uh, overwork, as we have looked at, how the Bible solution is counterintuitive to what the world would tell us is the solution to these problems. 
And so whenever we see this, that we have this problem that is before us, and we have the world's answer, or we have God's wisdom, then we have a choice before us, which is that you can follow the world's wisdom, which will, because it is the opposite of God's, which is true wisdom, will usually only make matters worse, or you can follow God's plan, God's plan of surrendering these things to God. Today we're looking at an issue that is going that is at the very center of many of our the issues that we face in life, uh, but this issue is also one that is at the very center of many of our cultural battles today, and that is the self and the ego. In other words, what is the self? Who determines what our self-identity is, uh, and how do we build up a self-identity? That's what we're looking at today. Like I said, we've been looking at mostly personal problems, but this one is one that we can see also in our society very much today. So we're going to look at two things today. We're going to look at the problem with the ego. We're going to look at the problem with the ego, the natural state of the human ego, and then we're going to look at the Christian ego. By this, I mean the pers- a person's self-identity. We often use the word ego in terms of just pride, like that person has a lot of ego as a synonym for pride. Today I'm using it in the sense of how a person conceives of themselves, thinks of themselves, their self-identity. So the problem with the natural human ego, and then we're going to look at the Christian's ego or self-identity. So we begin by just looking at this passage here. I know that this is one that maybe you've never heard taught on before. I think there's a lot of passages in First and Second Corinthians that haven't been taught on before. Uh, perhaps you've heard 1 Corinthians 13 taught on before and read at, at weddings many times before, uh, but maybe not this one. And to a certain extent, that's for good reason, not for a good reason that we can't learn anything from it, but because there's some really difficult passages in First and Second Corinthians. And most of this is due to the historical context of what was going on in this time in, in the Corinthian church. If you've ever felt bad about your church and the state of your church and maybe some of the problems going on in your church, just read First and Second Corinthians, and then you're going to feel really good. You're going to realize we're not doing all that bad. Right? The, the church in Corinth, especially in the first letter, uh, was an absolute mess. I don't have time to go into all the things that uh, that we know were going on here, because you know what, what scholars do is they kind of do some, they, they read what Paul says and they they try to uh, take some logical steps backwards to say, okay, well if he was saying this, addressing this, then we can logically deduce that this was going on, right? And so they do that throughout Paul's letter. In every couple chapters, you can see like, oh, okay, he's addressing another issue here, well, and he's saying this. So what? What kind of situation was he addressing? Oh, my goodness, that was going on? You know, and then you read a few more chapters, and, um, you know, for example, the, the chapter leading up to First uh, Corinthians 13, where he's talking about the love. Do you know what he's addressing there? He's addressing a situation where they were having a church together at their home, and their worship services were, would always include a meal, would always include a, a bread and cup, the communion for example. So they're having worship services together. Now, all the wealthy members of the church uh, didn't have to work as many hours as the, the laborers and the, and the lower class members of the church. And so they were able to gather together sooner. And what they would do was, is they would gather together and start, quote unquote, worshiping and eat all the food and get drunk. And then the poorer members of the church would show up and not be able to partake in worship because the, the bread and the cup were depleted. They were gone. 
And so this is actually what Paul's addressing in 1 Corinthians 13, which then makes it a little awkward when it's read at weddings and you know the context of what's really going on here. He's pointing out to them, you're not being loving. This is what love is and what love does. So go back and reread 1 Corinthians 11 and 12, uh, and, and you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about there. That's just one example. There are many going on. There's one such example going on in the passage that we read this morning in chapters uh, 3 and 4. And what's happening here, the main thing that Paul is trying to address is this arrogance that has come up in the church. This incredible arrogance that has come up among the the members of the church. And there's some nuances to it in a lot that we could say, but a lot of it boils down to, and and one way that it it boiled down to, was the arrogance was built around this tribalism that had also formed. There's these divisions that had come up among the church. And once again, there's divisions all through the book that Paul's addressing. This is one of them. There are these divisions that had come up in the church because Corinth and the church there had a couple of di- different founders or planters. And one of them, the first was, um, or no, I'll take it back. The first was Apollos. Apollos was there first. And then Paul comes along and he continues to build up the church. So there are people there who had been there in the Apollos days, and there had been people who were there in the Paul days. Some of them had become Christians and then discipled and baptized through the teaching of Apollos. Others have become Christians and baptized and discipled by the teaching of Paul. And then they start to form these tribes based off of, well, I'm a disciple of Apollos. Well, I'm a disciple of Paul. And they were, by basing their self-identity, the ego, as a Christian on this, as, as a disciple of Paul or a disciple of Apollos, they were very arrogant and boastful and then having all kinds of divisions. And that's what Paul's addressing here in the end of chapter 3, where he's telling them, you know, you're boasting in your wisdom like the world boasts in wisdom. He says you're arrogant, you're boasting in names and self-identities. And then he goes into chapter 4 saying that we are all just trying to be faithful stewards, your leaders, and therefore you should do the same and stop being so arrogant. That's what Paul's addressing here, because their self-identity, once again, was based on being Paul's disciple or Apollos' disciple, and they were arrogant and boastful about this. This is what he's addressing, and it's also the issue that I want us to consider today for ourselves, this issue of how we can base our self-identity in something, and then what does that produce whenever we do so. Let's take a brief historical journey. So hop hop in with with me through a time machine, and we're going to take a brief journey to just look at this issue of ego and self-identity and how we have gotten to where we are today. So As I said in the introduction, the world's wisdom and biblical wisdom are very often opposed and opposite with one another, but occasionally there's some overlap. And one area where there is overlap in biblical wisdom and in the ancient world was with the issue of of pride and of arrogance and of a and, and of how much we of how highly we viewed ourselves. Obviously, according to Scripture, we know, and we already had a a week where we looked at the issue of pride specifically, we know that Scripture teaches against having a prideful heart. It teaches against having a too high view of ourselves, a a view of ourselves that lifts us up above others. It tells us that this is sinful, number one. It tells us that this produces all kinds of problems in our life, that it places obstacles and barriers between us and knowing God well. We know that the Bible teaches this. But the ancient world also held the same value. In many cultures throughout the ancient world, they saw having too high of a view of oneself as being a bad thing. 
that it was bad to see yourself too highly, to have a, a, an incorrect view of yourself that lifted you up above others. No, not quite to the same extent as Scripture, but there's a good bit of overlap here. In the ancient world, this was called hubris. Maybe you've heard that term before. It might sound familiar. Hubris. Hubris was this idea of this, this overextended view of the self that led to one's downfall. Maybe you remember this from your uh, literature classes in high school or college, the, the idea of hubris in Greek tragedies. Um, the, the main character would usually have some kind of personal flaw, an, an oversized view of himself or herself, that through the, the chain of events would lead to that person's downfall. This is also a major element in Shakespearean plays, and so on. But there was some common consensus there, and this is the primary view throughout most of human history until the mid and later 20th century. All of a sudden, the common sense approach and the world's wisdom, at least or especially here in the West, completely flipped to saying, no, actually, having a very high view of oneself and thinking a lot of oneself and just loving oneself is great. This was the self-esteem movement. The self-esteem movement came along, and it looked around at the world in a completely opposite way. It, it looked as at, at hubris as not a, a danger right, to, to oneself, but as a value. It looked around at the world, and it looked at, it looked at crime and, and, and violence. It looked at divisions and so on. And the self-esteem esteem movement looked at all these things and said, the reason people commit crime is because they have low self-esteem. We just need to boost the self-esteem of all those people who are in the prisons, and then we can eliminate crime. The, the reason that we have um, you know, mental health issues is because of low self-esteem. We just need to boost the self-esteem of people, and they'll no longer be anxious or depressed and so on. And, and so this was the common wisdom for, for a while. Now, w w without going into all the details, the self-esteem movement was largely seen to be a failure. People recognized that Boosting one's self-esteem didn't necessarily do away with all the problems of life, and, and studies showed over time, um, they started to see this in the late 90s and early 2000s, studies showed that actually the people who had absorbed that message the most ended up being the most messed up. <laughs> who could have known? Who could have guessed, right? But then, over the course of the 2000s, it, it kind of goes down, and then into the 2010s, where we are today, we have something that is completely unique. It is not the watch out for hubris of the ancient world and of scripture, and it is also not the, well, you just need more self-esteem that we had here in the, in the 20th century. But what we have now is a movement that is completely unique. It is a movement which tells us that, um, that you can define your self-identity, that you can define your self-identity, that you can choose exactly who you want to be. All you have to do is look inside of yourself and decide, who am I, right? And then you can build your identity around that. Now, we can, we've seen in our culture how this can be taken to very extreme examples, such as uh, choosing uh, one's gender, right? This idea that uh, that is not tied to anything that is objective, but that is purely by looking inside of oneself and seeing, well, what do I feel like most? What do I want to be, and then based upon what that person decides, choosing a gender or a non-binary uh, uh, position or whatever else. We've seen this go on into even more extreme examples where, you know, for example, this past week, and once again, I'm not using these examples to mock them at all. Just this past week, I saw a clip of someone who was on TikTok and explaining 
how to, uh, how to communicate with someone who has bug pronouns. So bug this and bug that and bug self. Uh, I've also seen, there's others out there you can find on people who have cake pronouns or frog pronouns or they identify as a furry, which means they most feel like a dog or a cat or a wolf or this or that. Completely unique in world history, what we're living in right now. Never been seen before. But it all comes from this idea that you are the complete authority over your life. You get to decide and determine what is your identity. You see, whereas in world history before, what determined your identity was tied to something more outside of you. It was tied to, for example, gender was tied to your physical body, uh, your or, or it was your identity was tied to a religious community, or it was tied to a family, tied to a tribe, or so on. Today, it has been completely disconnected from anything outside of oneself to seeing completely just what is inside the self and decide. And then, and then determine all of the other factors in life that I need to put in place to support that chosen self-identity. You see, so whenever someone d- chooses their self-identity, then their well-being becomes dependent on others affirming that chosen self-identity. This is where we see the rise of, uh, philosophers call it the uh, self, uh, oh, I just had a, expressive individualism. There we go. The rise of expressive individualism, which means the greatest value in life is that I express who I am on the inside, and then have the world around me affirm that. You can see this all over the place in Disney movies. You can see it in, in cartoon shows, and you can see it, once again, on social media and in, in, in the media more broadly, and so on. That the greatest value in life is, is expressing that chosen identity and then having others around you affirming it. And if they don't affirm it, then what is that seen as? It's not just seen as a difference in opinion, right? I, I know a lot of people especially conservatives, really misunderstand this. And we say, oh, they're just so weak and fragile, they can't handle someone disagreeing with them. You don't understand. In this worldview, that is, that is seen, even if you, we don't agree, that is seen as an assault on them. Okay? We can disagree with that worldview, but we need to understand it and take it seriously. Because your well-being as a person is dependent on people affirming what you have chosen for yourself. So what is the result of the self-esteem movement and this, this, what we have today, this unique movement of uh, choosing who you are, deciding what your self-identity is? Has it led to greater prosperity and happiness? Absolutely not. The result, it has led to absolute chaos and despair. What we have seen over the last several decades are rises in uh, drug abuse, alcoholism, we have seen rises in, uh, in, in violence. We have seen rises in suicides. Today, suicide is one of the top leading causes of death in our nation. And for, and for people who are wealthy and prosperous, we see how not just suicides, the intentional taking of one's life, but, but uh, what are so-called deaths of despair, deaths that are due to alcoholism or deaths that are due to drug overdoses and so on, are also on the rise and one of the top leading causes of death in our society today. We see that the people, like those on TikTok, who are taking uh, all of these uh, extreme uh, self-identities, uh, are, do not become more whole and healthy people, but become, in, in fact, weaker and more needy. 
absolute chaos, absolute despair as we have embraced these movements. We have a society full of, uh, full of empty people who are doing everything they can to show that their existence matters. That's what's beneath it all. You see, you might look around at, at those people, and, it, and like I said, it could be easy to mock. It could be easy to laugh. But you know what? It's the very same thing inside of you that's inside of them driving them to do that. Maybe for you, in order to show the world and to justify your existence, you do, through, do so through more traditional means, through overworking yourself, through moralism, through trying to present your family as just the ideal perfect picture of what a, a family can be, maybe through your accomplishments, maybe through your actual looks and appearances. You're working so hard to present this identity that you have chosen for yourself, maybe that is well put together, respectable, or intelligent, or knowledgeable, or sociable, or whatever else it might be. And you're just uh, working so hard to present this image to the world, this self-identity that you have chosen for yourself to justify your existence, to say to the world and to yourself, I matter. Those who are choosing bug pronouns or or transgenderism, or a non-binary expression, or any other identity issues that we see today are doing the same thing. Trying to justify their existence and say, I matter uh, by pursuing these different paths. But what it does, as I said, is it doesn't create people who are more full and well, but it creates people who are empty. People who are empty. There's a psychologist who decades ago wrote an article on this idea of the empty self based upon all these, these alarming, disturbing trends that we're seeing in society. His name is Philip Cushman, and here's how he explained it. He said, the empty self is filled up with consumer goods, calories, experiences, politicians, romantic partners, and empathetic therapists. The empty self experiences a significant absence of community tradition and shared meaning, a lack of personal conviction and worth, and it embodies the absences as a chronic, undifferentiated, emotional hunger. We are living in a society full of empty selves. We're living in a society full of ghosts. People who are empty on the inside and desperately trying to fill it through those things that he described, whether they be experiences, romantic partners, calories, whether they be political movements, whether they be careers, or whether they be any, some other type of self expression, but nevertheless, in the end, ghosts trying to um, justify our existence and, and experience something that is real. And I find it interesting that within the world, we see this nomenclature of empty self come up because it echoes what Paul said in this, in this passage, where he was addressing these uh, Corinthian Christians who were basing their self-identity on being Paul's apostle or Apollos' disciple and uh, becoming very puffed up by that and arrogant, it echoes what Paul says. Whenever he, in verse, I'm um, sorry, in chapter 3 in the passage we read, he's, he warned them against boasting, and then in chapter 4, he warns them against arrogance. The Greek words that Paul uses here, whenever he warns them against their arrogance, arrogance, are very unique to Paul. We don't find them outside of Paul's writings. They're only here in Corinthians and I think once in Colossians. It's a unique word that Paul likes to use to describe arrogance and boasting, 
And it was a word that literally carried the nuance of being bloated, right? Think of how a balloon is, is small, but then as it is filled with air, it is blown up and extended and bloated. This is the idea behind the word that Paul uses where he talks about arrogance and what he is warning them from. It's the nuance of bloated or of being overinflated or of being swollen. Uh, it carries the idea of like an organ in the body being distended and, and, and enlarged, right? This is what Paul says is the natural condition of the human ego. And this is the natural condition of all those who are empty selves, trying to fill themselves up with all those things or with all those identities and then express them to the world, overinflating, bloating, swelling up, but at the end of the day, truly being empty on the inside. Here's our first major point for today. The problem with the natural ego or a self-identity apart from God is that it is swollen and empty. A self-identity, an ego that is established apart from God will be swollen and empty. Now consider just a few things that that means. If the ego or the self-identity is swollen and empty apart from God, first, as I said before, it will be empty. No matter how, how hard our media or our entertainment industries try to push the message of expressive individualism and say that, you know, if you can just uh, express yourself the most to the fullest and get the most affirmations, then you will finally feel full. You will finally feel significant. No matter how much they try to push that message, it is not true. And at the end of the day, you will remain empty. You will remain empty because a self-identity that is built on something other than God is artificial. It's artificial. It's not real. You cannot find a source of significance large enough to fill the void that is in your heart, that is that you that the chasm that you feel needs to be filled. Like I said, that drive and that pursuit to do something and to prove to ourselves and the world around us that we matter, that our life has significance, and to justify that existence, apart from God, the void will remain empty. So it's empty. Secondly, if your self-identity, if your ego is swollen and overinflated, it's going to be painful. It's going to be painful. You know, very often, and there's many things in life that you do not notice until there's something wrong with them. This is true in our bodies. This is true uh, in, our, in our vehicles. You know, n I, I'm sure that none of you guys here, assuming your car was running well, no one here drove, this, drove in this morning and thought, boy, my transmission is really doing great today. You only notice the transmission until there's something wrong with it, right? I bet no one walked in here saying, my toes are feeling good. <laughs> or th this elbow today is just, whew, it's it feels fantastic. It's not until it hurts. It's not until your, your elbow hurts that you really start to notice it. It's not until the toes or, or something inside you starts to hurt that you really begin to notice it. There's, there's something wrong. But then once there's something wrong, then pain says, hey, there's something going on here. It's like the check engine light on your vehicle, right? Whenever you start to feel pain in the elbow or in the shoulder or in the knee or wherever else, the check engine light is on. That pain telling you, hey, there's something wrong here. There's something going on. It's the same thing with our egos. It's the same thing with the empty self. The empty self, like I said, which is empty, it, it, will, it will also be, as Paul uses vividly in those words, it, it will be swollen and bloated. And what happens with something in your body that is swollen and bloated? It hurts. 
There will be pains that will alert you to the problem that is going on inside of yourself. Very often, people describe this as, my feelings were hurt. Your feelings weren't hurt. Your feelings are okay, actually. Your feelings are telling you that your ego was hurt. Feelings don't get hurt. They're, they're, they're symptoms. They, they are, they are uh, they're like emotional gauges to let you know what is going on inside of your heart and in your mind. They're, they're, they're gauges that you can use to read. And whenever your feelings are hurt, what that really means usually is that your ego was hurt. Your chosen self-identity was hurt. It was threatened. And now those bad feelings that you have are, is the pain of that, that swollen ego, the pain of that bloated organ inside of you telling you there's something wrong here. The natural ego, a self-identity apart from God, will be empty. It will be painful. Third, it'll be busy. The inflated ego is busy continually trying to fill the emptiness inside of the self. There's two primary ways that you'll find yourself doing this, being very busy to fill that emptiness. Number one, by comparing. You'll always be comparing yourself to other people. You won't be able to stop. You'll catch yourself doing it before you even realize that you began. Constantly comparing yourself to other people, comparing yourself maybe to their lifestyle and, and, and how it seems to be so much better than yours. Comparing yourself to their, to their health and athletic performance and how much better it is than yours. Comparing uh, their marriage and yours and how theirs uh, seems to have better communication or theirs is more Instagrammable or whatever else it might be. But you'll always be comparing yourself to other people depending on whatever that self-identity is that you've chosen. And it's going to take away joy. The common expression, um, it's so true. Comparison is the thief of joy, right? And so that aching from a lack of joy, once again, that, that, that pain signal, that check engine light is going off in your heart saying, hey, something is wrong here. Usually it's the busyness of comparing yourself to others because of that emptiness inside of you that constantly needs to be filled. Or on the other hand, boasting. We will be we, we will be very concerned with continually being sure that others around us are seeing what we want them to see. Like I said before, whether it be our accomplishments or our relationships or whatever else, we'll be very busy making sure that those people see those things. And there, there's people who are better and worse at, at this. Some people are not very good at it. They boast and everyone immediately can tell they're boasting. There's other people who are more clever with it and can boast without seeming quite so boastful, but nevertheless making sure that people see those positive traits. In accomplishments. The empty self is empty, painful, busy, and then lastly, it is fragile. It's fragile. This is true whether you have an inferiority complex, you're always down on yourself, or whether you have a superior superiority complex. Like I said, if you compare this to the idea of a balloon, whether that balloon has a little bit of air or whether it has a lot of air, it's still empty at the end of the day. And whether it has a little or a lot, whether you're always being down on yourself or whether you're always boasting, it'll be very fragile. It'll be very fragile. There'll, you will constantly see threats to your self-identity. You'll constantly see threats to this image and facade that you have had built up being torn down and being revealed for what it actually is. Anything in life will begin to be able to threaten it. As I explained before, the... The, the fragileness of chosen identities today and how 
that makes a, a person so um, so susceptible to seeing any disagreement or any threatening or any threat to their chosen identity as being an actual assault on them. There's truth for all of us. If we're empty, it'll be fragile. But compare this empty self, this empty, fragile self, with what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In chapter 4, he, um, let me read it. I love what he says in verses 3 and 4 here. On the surface, they, they seem um, quite common sense, or maybe not all that extraordinary, but there is something fantastic here. In verse 3 and 4, he says, It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. That is incredible. Because what he is describing here is a person who is the, the opposite of everything we just described about an empty self and what makes an empty self and how you can see it and how you can identify it, right? What he describes in those couple of verses, we, we can see this is different. This is different than what I experience. I know, right, because I know that there's times that, that if I'm judged, it, it gets to me. I know that there are times that even the things that I say about myself to myself get to me. But Paul says, is saying something here that is different from my experience and different from what we have seen before. What is he talking about here? What does he mean? He says, only God can judge me. Now, years ago, whenever Redeemer was just getting started, actually, we hadn't even officially started yet. We, we had a soft launch, and we were meeting in a <laughs> what was basically a glorified closet uh, in the backstage area of a dirty, grimy little theater downtown. And uh, I don't even remember what I was preaching on. And, you know, today I'm much more selective in the quotes that I use. But back then I would quote anything. Uh, if I thought it fit, and I quote a line from a Miley Cyrus song where she said, only God can judge me, and someone in the back said, amen, and uh, keep in mind, there was like 12 of us in there, you know, so it was, no one missed it, and I was using it as a bad example, as I am right now, it was extremely awkward, there's about three of y'all here who were there for that, Um, people say that all the time today, it's in, you know, uh, number one hits on the radio, and we, we see it elsewhere. Uh, we see people, people post about it on social media, usually when they're about to do something quite shameful. Only God can judge me. Now, they mean something very different than what Paul means here. That's why I think it, it could be easy for us to maybe miss how he is saying something so profound. Because whenever people say that today, what they're usually saying, just trying to get across, is, is like, I don't care what any of y'all think about me. But they're also saying... But they're also not saying that they care what God thinks about them, because otherwise, they would care about that shameful behavior. What they're trying to say is that only what I want matters. Only what I want and what I think about myself matters. And that's different from what Paul said. Did you notice what he said? He said, I don't care if any of you judge me. He says, I don't even judge myself. Huh. You see, we might think, that the only judgment we need free freedom from in the world is judgment of other people. But Paul says there's someone else you got to watch out for. He said, you better watch out for yourself, too. 
Because whenever people say that, only God can judge me, what they usually mean, what they, what they mean is that only their opinions of themselves matters. And friends, we all know from experience that you can be a harsher judge on yourself than anyone else. Paul says, I have found freedom even from that. He says, because I have recognized truly that only God can judge me. He excludes himself as well. Whenever he says to the Corinthians, you can't judge me, I can't judge me, only God does, and he has. The word that he's using, literally translated, means verdict. He says, I don't care what verdict the world has for me. I don't pass a verdict on myself. Only God's verdict matters. He had recognized that God has passed a verdict on him that has made any judgments or opinions of the world around him absolutely insignificant, don't matter at all. He also recognized that the verdict that God has passed, because God is the true judge, all other judges are, are, are false. The judgments of the world, the judgment of the self, they are all false. They're trying to take the place of what is the pla- of who is the ultimate true judge. So, God, so Paul recognizes he's the ultimate true judge over me. And he has passed a verdict that is better and that is truer, more solid, something I can stake my life on. And so it, doesn't, it makes whatever anyone else thinks, including myself, not matter. He knows who the real judge is and the verdict he has passed. But notice this. If you go and you read 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul also says, he describes himself as the worst of sinners. He says, Jesus Christ came into the world to to save sinners. He says, and of whom I am chief. Take both of those together and ask yourself, how is it possible to have such a personality? How is it possible to have such a self-identity? On the one hand, I don't care what anyone thinks. I don't care what I say about myself. He's He's secure. And then on the other hand, I'm the worst of the worst. (laughs) How do you bring those two things together? Secure confidence, right? Nothing phases him, he's saying. The the opinions of the world, the verdicts of of Roman judges don't bother him, but he also recognizes he's the worst of the worst because he has seen and heard this in God's verdict of him. He knew that his verdict was guilty before God, guilty before God, shame before God because of his sin. He had an infinite record of debt. He had a blotted record before the Lord that if the, if the, the verdict for that sin had been brought against him, it would have meant death. But instead, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, steps into the picture. And he takes Paul's dirtiness. He takes Paul's guilt. He takes Paul's shame. He takes Paul's debt. And he brings it upon himself. He stands in Paul's place. So where Paul stood in the place of verdict being guilty... Now Jesus comes in and has Paul step aside and Jesus stands there and he receives that verdict and he dies the death that Paul should have died. But then because his death was satisfactory to the judge being God the Father, God raises Jesus Christ from the dead so that now Paul can not only uh, just have someone take his place in that guilty verdict, but the new life achieved by Christ and the favor with God, the righteousness of Christ that Jesus had, uh, had, had earned in his lifetime because of his resurrection, that new life and that righteous power is attributed to Paul who once stood in the place of being guilty. This is why he can recognize he stood in that spot 
He heard that verdict. He knew he was chief of sinners. But for how much the, the Lord loved him. He stood in his place. He took on that debt. He took on that sin and shame and died with it. And now gave Paul the new verdict of justified. And Paul recognizes because of who God the Father is and because of the immutability, the unchangeableness of what Jesus has done, because the judge of the universe has now passed a verdict of justified on me, nothing can change it. And the same thing is true for you and I. The same opportunity is available to you and I. You must recognize, friends, that you stand in the place of guilt. You stand in the place of, uh, of earning and of deserving judgment before the Lord because of our sin. Because even, if I dare say, of our empty selves. Because of our trying to fill ourselves up and build up self-identities on things that are other than God. Because of us uh, uh, choosing our own word and our own way over God. Because of our breaking his law. Because of our worshiping idols over him. We stand in the place of guilt. But oh, he loves us. Though his, his wrath burns against sin, oh, he loves us. And he loves you enough that he will not let you remain in your guilty, shameful state. He loves you enough that he will come and stand in your place. He will rescue you from your guilt and shame. He will rescue you from the pain of living in that empty condition. The pain of living in that confused condition. For any of you here this morning who are, who are experiencing that confusion in your self-identities, whether it be through, like I said, one of the more traditional aspects we described, and you feel yourself overworked, you feel yourself at pain because of the way that people see you or the slights that people make against you, or if any of you here are experiencing the pain that comes from the confusion of identity that goes to uh, deeper things beyond that, identity over the person, the man or the woman that God made you to be, and, and you're hearing the wisdom of the world that, that is very alluring, let me say to you, friends as well, God loves you so much that he does not want to leave you in your miserable state, in your painful, empty state. But that the only way to experience deliverance from that state is through death. But because Jesus stood in your place, and because he stood in my place, it doesn't have to be yours. He died the death. He took it on himself on the cross. And he rose from the grave so that you can experience wholeness. So that you can experience healing. So that what was once emptiness inside of you can now be filled. And you can have that crazy, wild perspective, that character that Paul had, that recognizes who you were, who you really were, but how it just does, it doesn't matter. Because God has looked at you based on the work of his son and said, justified. And no one can change that. Our last point as we close today, the Christian's self-identity is secure in Christ. It is secure in Christ. Just consider what this means before we close. Will you be arrogant if your self-identity is Christ? Absolutely not. You'll be like Paul. You, you won't be ashamed of being seen as a sinner. You won't be ashamed of being seen as a sinner. You won't be ashamed of, of being seen as someone who is, who is weak and of having your flaws revealed and so on. 
you won't have any arrogance. You won't have any, any boastfulness. You won't have a self-image that you're so neurotically determined to protect. You won't have that. Absolutely not. You, you would be willing, like Paul, to say, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst of the worst. You, you, whatever you say about me, it's nothing compared to what I know the true depth of about myself. You won't be arrogant if you, your self-identity is Christ. Well, on the, on the other hand, then, does that mean that you'll be self-hating? To constantly be walking around and say, oh, I'm the worst of the worst, I'm the chief of sinners, and, and blah, 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 this, and blah, 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 that. No, you're not going to be that kind of a person either. You're going to be someone who is truly humble. Truly humble. True humility means this, not self-hate. True humility does not mean thinking less of yourself. It means thinking of yourself less, as C.S. Lewis famously said. I referenced this a few weeks ago. I'll reference it again. His chapter, C.S. Lewis's chapter on pride and mere Christianity, that's, that little chapter alone is worth the price of the book, um, and it, it might be the single best essay on pride ever written in the Christian tradition. Something that he says in that chapter, he says, when you meet a truly humble person, you probably won't even be aware of it. It's not going to be the kind of an encounter where you walk away from saying, oh, that person is so humble. You know, we, we, you do that certain times, you meet someone who's always talking themselves down or always minimizing themselves or minimizing their accomplishments and so on. And people say of that kind of a person, oh, they're so humble. Not really. Lewis disagrees. He says, if you meet someone who is actually humble, you're, you're not going to walk away thinking that. You're going to walk away thinking, what an interesting person. Because they took more of an interest in you than they did in themselves. Humility is thinking of yourself less. It's being less self-concerned, less constantly looking at how everything that's happening in life is, is, is influencing or impacting, you know, moi, <laughs> me, and more concerned about other people. So you won't be arrogant, but neither will you be self-hating. Can anyone take it away, this self-identity that you have in Christ? No, of course not. No one can take it away. Not even you can take it away. It is secure by God's decree. Because he has said it, it is done. You see, so we, we considered earlier how those who choose their own self-identity and then try to express it to the world so that it might be affirmed, if anyone disagrees with it or speaks against it or mocks it, then that person will see it as a direct assault on themselves. Christians, we do this too. If someone mocks Christianity if they once again portray a Christian in the most negative light possible in the media and so on, very often Christians take this as a personal assault too. Because sometimes our self-identity is more in being a Christian than in Christ. I want us to read very uh, clearly what Paul said at the very end of chapter 3. So let no one boasts in human leaders, he says, Paul, Apollos, or so on, he says, everything is yours, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. You know, thereby, logic, you belong to God. Sometimes our identity can be based more in a Christian label than actually that we are in Christ and that we belong to him. So sometimes we can react the same way. But an identity that is secure in Christ and the knowledge that I belong to him we recognize no one can take it away, no one can threaten it, no one can hurt me by mocking it. Can pain and suffering take it away? Can tragedies, can malevolence take it away? 
No, because it is based upon Christ's finished work. And so by no work of your own, by no work of the enemy, by no work of uh, opposition from culture, by no work of someone who has malevolence against you, by no work of natural disasters, can that work be overturned because it is based on what Christ has done. So surrender yourself, your, your chosen self-identities. Surrender your ego to the Lord. Let it die on the cross so that you might receive a true filling in Christ's work. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this good word. We praise you for this gospel, this good news that comes to us, Father, and how, like the surgeon's knife, it cuts and it stings, Lord, but it brings us to a place of healing. It brings us to you. Lord, for those of us in here this morning who have been feeling empty, who have been pursuing chosen self-identities, who have been experiencing the warning signs of that inflated ego, or who have been confused over our identity, Father, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would meet each of us individually here this morning. Bring us to a place of seeing that that those chosen self-identities and that confusion and so on is sin, and we need rescue from that sin, and that you offer it in the finished work of our King, Jesus. And bring us all to the foot of the cross this morning, Lord, where we might lay down our identities, where we might lay down our boastings and comparisons and receive the gift of an identity of knowing that we belong to Christ. And that cannot be changed It cannot be taken away. It cannot be threatened. It is ours now and through eternity. We pray these things in the name of our good Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us stand together now and respond.